Today is Sunday, November 25th. That's one month from Christmas. That's crazy. Uh, 2018, and this is episode 229 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Good evening, Jerry. How are you, sir? I'm really good. How are you? I am good. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? I did. It was uh, it was great. My, uh, my oldest son came back from college and spent the day with us, or actually spent the weekend with us. So it was, uh, it was a good time. Nice and relaxing. How about you? Uh, it was good, but you didn't move without telling him while he was away at college. I thought that's what all parents did. Just mine? <laughs> I think that was just yours, yes. Huh. Well, otherwise, no, mine was great. Thank you. Ate too much, took a nap. It was good times. Good. Good deal. So um, just a reminder before we get into stories that the thoughts and opinions uh, uh, we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employers. And that remains true always and forever. So anyway, um, let's get into some stories. So um, some some kind of news of the weird, I would say, um, this, this week. First up is a story from DutchNews.nl. The title is Internet Conmen Ripped Off Path NL for 19 Million Euros in Sophisticated Fraud. Now, that alone isn't terribly innovative or surprising. What was surprising is that uh, two executives at this, uh, what apparently is a theater chain, uh, were actually dismissed. And by the way, that's pretty, pretty, um, I think it's a pretty high bar in. Uh, in Europe to be terminated with cause. So um, anyway, the, the, this appears to be a pretty standard business email compromise type uh, scam. Uh, There's a little, a little bit of detail missing, but apparently the, the, the um, corporate CEO's email was, was, um, Faked, and by the way, it's not really clear if it was done as a result of the, the CEO's email getting compromised or if it was spoofed. But anyway, this um, I guess this is subsidiary or or a branch office, really a little bit unclear. Ended up over the course of about two weeks paying close to twenty million euros to some scammers. Um, using the the kind of the old trope of you know we're we're buying a company in Dubai and you can't tell anybody. Uh, now, you know it, it. This all came to light because one of the two people who were who were fired actually filed a lawsuit, and I guess I, I'm not sure. I don't remember if it was the the sure. man or the woman, right? But lawsuit for wrong, wrongful termination, wrongful, basically. Wrongful termination. Now, they yeah. apparently got... Uh, it was a mixed judgment, as far as I can tell. They um, they got back pay from... I guess they were terminated back in March of 2018. 
and the court dis- decided that the company had to pay them through or pay this person through uh, December first. So yeah, I thought I did think it was interesting uh, that people got fired over it, and you know the defense is what we often sort of talk about sometimes in these cases, which is that this was a sophisticated attack, that you know this was an advanced criminal organization, and that. Uh, anybody would have fallen for this, et cetera, et cetera. But it was an interesting attack where th- they got the original email uh, asking for 826,000 euro. Uh, and then it followed on with another transfer of 2.5 million euro. And then uh, a third and a fourth payment overall, just shy or just over 19 million euro uh, before sort of the parent company or somebody else figured it out and started looking into it and saying, hey, what's going on? Um, And it's the typical, hey, you can't tell anybody. This has to be confidential. I and I alone will notify the affected parties in due time. So that power of the CEO being used uh, to garner uh, reaction from the people that they're targeting. So it's, you know, fairly typical, but just walking through for those who haven't heard it much or seen it much. But yeah, that they were that these two guys were fired once fighting it uh, is interesting. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I I don't think the other one was fighting it. But the only reason this came to light was because um, because this person actually filed a wrongful term- termination suit, and so some details were released that, that probably wouldn't otherwise have been released. Yeah, and I tried to look at the court documents, but they were in a foreign language I couldn't read in. Yeah, Google pro- failed me. Probably Dutch. Yeah, that would that would make sense. Yeah, uh, you know, we talked about this a little bit too in, in previous, you know, shows and, and talks of how to defend against this. And I think, you know, just to quickly sum up, it's really having strong processes that even the CEO's word can't change easily. Uh, as a, I think one of the only ways you can really counter this and make sure that even the CEO has to follow the process. Yeah, exactly. You know, I. I it it really creates a these these um these kind of scams i think create some pretty strong internal conflict with the victims because you know there it's the ceo or someone purporting to be the ceo um you know saying you know basically giving a direct order and and right. you know you're effectively on penalty of job loss yeah almost Right, you're you're basically yeah. you know telling the CEO no, I'm not going to follow your instructions, and that's a, you know, so so you know in a way you're kind of in, in as damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like if it's if it is the CEO, you know you're you're going to raise the ire of uh, you know of, of the chief executive of the company you you work for, and if it's not you, um, you know you're you're at risk of being fired. So it's a it's a really difficult position, and I think you're right. This has to be overtly handled. I mean, people have to understand that they can say no to the CEO in circumstances like this, and 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 they'll be okay. I mean, otherwise, I think they're going to be conflicted, and and people will continue to fall for this. Yeah, it's a tough. Uh, it's why it works. It's why it's a a very effective campaign. Is it's really targeting some some very innate, sophisticated psychological weaknesses that we have of following authority orders and and you know understanding that certain types of business transactions need to be private and quiet. And uh, so I think the time to figure this out is typically, as they say, in peacetime, when you're not in the middle of one of these, 
and also talking about you talk to your folks and say, hey, if you ever suspect that something isn't right, you know, foster the environment to do a sanity check in some alternative communication methodology. Yeah, you know, the, the, the unfortunate part of, of this is that mo- I bet you most companies don't really think even think about this. doesn't even pop up on their radar as a threat until after it's happened. Right. And, you know, so hopefully, hopefully uh, people listening to the show, you know, will, will take this as a lesson if you haven't already and, and do something with it in your, in your organization. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. And I, I wonder if over time, you know, corporate auditors, you know, third-party auditing companies like KPMG and Deloitte and PwC and whatnot ought to, you know, provide that kind of guidance. So this is... You really, um, it it again. It's not a problem until it's a problem, and and so it's it's out of sight, out of mind, and um, you know, and it, it, it certainly is something that needs to be taken seriously. But like you said, nobody who's going to focus on this in peacetime, um, you know, if they haven't actually had it happen to them. That's the that's the. Uh, well, we're seeing see. a rise in this, right? We're seeing a, a clear trend. That this is starting to become a a more favored attack type, absolutely, because it's effective and it works and it nets big money. When absolutely, it works. twenty million euros—that's a crap load of money. Big payday. Yeah. So, and we really only know about this probably because of the lawsuit. Right. It very well could be happening and not being reported. Yeah, especially if if the companies are private, you know that. That uh, th- this probably happens far more than we we actually understand. So, anyhow, um, yeah, work on those processes. So, so next uh, story comes from Lifehacker. I think this may be the first Lifehacker post we've we've talked about. And the title is "How Password Constraints Give You a False Sense of Security." Um, I, you know, I I was conflicted about including this one, but. This comes up quite a lot. There's a whole lot of debate about passwords. There's some recent news about how Microsoft is uh, very, uh, not even slowly, is is pretty rapidly moving away from passwords to biometrics, and and uh, you know I think they they just declared support for U2F, the universal second factor, and um, you know, devices and and um, whatnot. So. Passwords, I think, are are kind of a hot topic in general in the security industry, and you know this is uh, this is one of those deals where I think you know Troy Troy uh, I think it's Troy Hunt has he's the person who runs the uh, Have I Been Pwned website where you can figure out if your email address has been involved in a, a data breach. Um, you know his his view and I, I certainly agree with this is that passwords are going to be with us for a long long time they're kind of the least common denominator for just security i mean there's a whole lot of institutional inertia and it inertia behind the use of passwords and you know so so anyway the the, the point of this i'd sum it up as saying a lot of the things that we do in security and in it to try to make to try to force passwords to be more complex actually works against us. And so as an example, <clears throat> they talk about, you know, when you make, when you, um, it, when you force a password to be at least eight characters long, 
you take away a huge um, potential space that uh, an attacker would have to search, right? So an attacker doesn't actually have to try a one through a seven character password. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so they, they, they just right off the bat, they know that they don't have to do that. They don't have to look in that, in that, uh, in that space. And then anytime you inject an additional requirement, like let's say one capital letter, a number, um, you know, a special character, those, you know, also narrow the, you know, the, the, the space of, um, of guesses, right? So, but you know, the, 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 I would say the one problem I had with this article is that brute forcing passwords, you kind of counterintuitively doesn't really uh, happen in this way, right? I mean, in general, password attacks don't happen by trying, you know, a, 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 b, a, you know, that, that's not how password guessing attacks work these days typically the way it's done is you have a massive dictionary built with you know all kinds of uh yes uh, yes i do <laughs> previously uh stolen stolen passwords and and then uh you run a dictionary attack right and then you right. substitute different you know you, you add numbers to the front and to the end and then you substitute different letters with the you know the kind of the lead speak the dollar sign for the s and whatnot, yeah, that's, there are known algorithms and it's easy, right? That's how yeah. that's how a lot of a lot of these password brute force attacks, you know, work these days. And actually, it's even it's it's I would say in in contemporary times, it's even gotten stranger than that. We're now onto this credential stuffing where they'll um, you know they'll, they'll actually take just raw passwords out of these password dumps. And rather than trying to break into, you know, one particular account, they'll, let's say, go to Facebook and just pick on Facebook and, you know, there's a billion accounts. Well, they'll, you know, they'll try, let's say, three or four different passwords on a billion accounts. Well, you know, those <laughs> those passwords are going to work on some percentage of the billion accounts. And that's that's how a lot of uh, account takeovers happen. That's how a lot of email accounts are compromised. Um, the ones I should say that are not the result of password reuse. So I still think, you know, th- this is kind of a, an interesting, this article is kind of an interesting discussion, but it's a little bit academic because I think that in general, the biggest problems we have are, are password reuse and, um, well, I guess really it is password reuse. It's yeah, I, I completely agree. This is also why I really push back against people adopting the new NIST recommendations of you don't need to change your password anymore if it's sufficiently complex. The problem I have with that is people reuse the same password over and over again. So that only, in my mind, that only works as if a it's a complete unique password and it's of sufficient complexity, and you've got brute force detection uh, and you know, sort of timeout-based lockouts of people trying to do brute forces, and you can completely secure your database of passwords so it can never be, um, you know, brute forced offline. So there's a lot of assumptions that go into that, and I think that's mm-hmm. why I think it's dangerous because I think most people use the same password over and over again. So assuming that a third-party site gets popped, uh, they probably have the same email address or very close to other password site to other sites, and they have the same password. So I don't necessarily need to 
pop your Facebook, I can go pop your Instagram somehow. And that, like you said, that email and username and password probably apply over there. So I think, again, that as we've said so many times, I feel like a broken record. And they mentioned this article too, to be fair. A password manager generating completely random complex passwords unique to every site, I think is your best defense on this one and or two-factor. Yeah, absolutely. There was a there was another story that came out um, over the past week or so, and we didn't include it in this week's uh, show. But it was it was another one of those articles digging on millennials, right? And it was uh, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was a, a significant percentage of millennials interviewed by this this group. And I think it was, of course, a study done by a you know provider of of identity and access management stuff. Uh, but they found that, that a, a very large percentage of their, their interviewees in the 18 to 25 age group um, reused pa- used the same password on work accounts as they do on personal accounts. And, and that, I think, goes to you know, your point. You're never required on some periodic basis to change your f- Facebook password. Right, so so your Facebook password could stay the same forever. Well, the, the new, adopting the new NIST guidance, I think, kind of aids and abets the whole concept of using the same password, just like you said, the same password on uh, both work accounts and and personal accounts, which is I think is a very dangerous thing. And minimally, if you're if you're requiring those password changes, you you really can't get away with that for very long, at least. Right. Yeah, it's it's a tough problem. I think really the solution is going to a, a solid two-factor. And I know people get into the whole SMS is two-week debate. I get it. I'm not going to get into that debate here. I think just like passwords, it's probably not going away. It's too too much momentum for that. It's too ingrained. Right. But I do think we're going to see some more cheaper alternative standards that will come out soon that might make sense. We're, we're starting to get there. But again – this still comes back to these companies who have to employ this technology realize that this is a burden or a perceived burden on their users. And there's an engagement friction that they're trying to uh, avoid. Mm-hmm. So if we apply too much password or authentication friction to an encounter and an engagement with our users, there will be a certain percentage who will no longer use that service. Yeah. And that is the counter of that argument that business executives are constantly balancing. Now, if you're internal at a business, it's a little bit different. But if you're talking about why doesn't Facebook enforce this for everybody, that's part of the equation. Yeah, I certainly agree. And by the way, I think that's one of the reasons Microsoft is moving so swiftly away from uh, you know, from from static passwords because of because of this very thing. You know, there there is a recognition that. Even even within an organization where the, you know, the, you wouldn't think that the the whole concept of friction is a big problem. That that actually is a big problem, especially in some of the high tech companies. You know, where, where you want to retain good talent, you want to keep. There's a lot of focus on, um, you know, employee satisfaction and and whatnot. So, um, I you know I think I think that is a you know, a positive trend as, as long as it's implemented in a sane and secure way. But, you know, in the meantime, like I said, I, I, I still don't think even, even with that said, passwords in general are going to be with us for the foreseeable future. I, I have to imagine I'll be retired by the time, you know, we even 
we, which I guess won't be all that long, but, um, you know, we, we, we is old. Yeah, it's true. Getting older every day. Um, you know, I, it, it's, it's a situation where we're going to be using password for a long time. So this, we need to come up with a, uh, you know, reasonably safe way. I think personally, Password managers are, are uh, assuming you can't use two-factor, right? Password managers with unique passwords per complex and unique passwords um, per site or per service is the way to go. They're just they're they're so damn easy these days. There's no excuse to not use them anymore. Well, a lot of people argue that's a concentration of risk, and now I just have to pop the password manager. I get that argument. I think it's an edge case. I think it's still worth the risk. I think the net gain in security. At this point, everything I see, I can be proven wrong. The net gain of security of having unique, randomized passwords per site with a password manager is higher than the risk imposed by a centralization of all my passwords. It's kind of like saying, well, I don't wear my seatbelt because, you know, if I end up in a certain kind of crash, you know, that my car's on fire and, you know, my seatbelt will prevent me from escaping. Well, you know, yeah, it (laughs) could happen. But it's far more likely it's just it's going to save your bacon. So, um, by the way, I will say another thing. I I actually am a proponent, and I know this is this is um, revolutionary and draconian, and probably wildly unpopular. But uh, I think services should generate passwords for people that that you then have to store in your password manager. So I like you don't get but- the. What? No. See? No. Yep. But now they know what my password is. Uh, There's nothing that stops them from capturing that when they generate it for me. Yep. (laughs) But if you change your password, you're giving it to them anyway. Okay, true. So, I mean, I I, I don't think it's that. I mean, it is is a... um, Now, what if the site gets lazy and issues the same complex password for everybody? Well, I, you know, I'm not saying it's a perfect idea. <laughs> I know, I'm just being silly, but right, you know, but I mean, there cer- I, I, there certainly are some well, downsides. Explain yourself, to that. sir. Explain yourself. What? What? Why do you think this is a good idea? Because this is just contrarian. Well, I think it's a good idea because it forces people to use a password manager. If if <laughs> if if I, you know, if you, if every service that you, because it's not memorizable. Exactly. Exactly. Now, what's the effect on their call center going to be when people forget this and forget to write it down and they write it round, down wrong and then they can't get back in? Uh, you know, I mean, I, like I said, it's not a perfect idea. And how do I integrate a password manager with like my main OS login? Well, you know, I mean, the, the, the password that, that, that may not apply everywhere, right? I mean, so, so it's not... For instance, it's not going to apply to the to, to log into your password manager, right? Right, right. Mm-hmm. You know, so so there. I mean, there's certainly going to be cases where where it won't make sense. But I think just in general, I, I the more I think about it, the more I like it. It's uh, and and by the way, if you want to if you want to view it as kind of more of the uh, like the nudge type view, you know, you could you could have it generate the password automatically and then. You could override it if you wanted to. You could you could so, pick your own crappy password. Um, 
you know, so, so kind of like, you know, like I said, kind of the nudge thing, you know, where they, where they automatically sign you up for, uh, for your 401k retirement deposit by default and you, you can opt out, but that kind it's of thing. A, it's, a, it's an interesting idea. I, I will ponder this mm. craziness you speak of. All right. Okay. So, uh, moving on to the next, next story. This, uh, is on CSO online. It's actually, like, I guess like an op-ed, it, the title is The End of Security as We Know It. I think this is the person who uh, who had a bad experience. So, um, I can, actually... Can, can you point out on the CSO dial where the vendor management people touched you? <laughs> yeah, so so the, uh, the, the author here points out that um, a, a, quote, large cloud hosting provider apparently it, ha- it has a... A scheme now where they are in their contracts, um, not permitting. Um, they they are reserving the right. I should say that, that differently. They're reserving the right to delegate uh, and subcontract work at at their own discretion, and they are not providing you, the customer, with audit rights or you know guarantees of of that. Uh, subcontractor so there's no there's no kind of pass through um so to speak and so so um in in this particular case uh this person is alleging and uh, you know they don't mention which company is doing this i'm assuming that you know they they he he calls it the abc web uh, cloud hosting company so i'm assuming that huh. i'm assuming it's going to be aws but i don't know um <laughs> Say that, that that they have a web portal where you can go in and see the you know the name of the vendor who's who's subcontracted uh, you know who who is subcontracted to perform some activity and then you can try to work with that subcontractor but the problem is as he points out you have no you the customer have no contractual relationship with that subcontractor so you have nothing there's there's no legal relationship. Um, you know, so so because cloud provider, well, we're just going to assume it's AWS for the sake of this conversation, okay? And I might be wrong, caveat, but it's easier to just say AWS. So AWS is subbing out stuff, and because you don't have a direct relationship, you can't do third-party vendor risk management of any variety. That's that's the allegation. And and that's a big deal. Yeah, that's a pretty big deal. So, so typically, and and by the way, this this uh, this person goes on to describe what a normal vendor management program looks like. There's typically three three key components, which is due diligence, and so so your ability uh, under this kind of agreement to perform due diligence has has been stripped because the you know the your provider has unilateral uh, you know authority to go in and engage this subcontractor now by the way that is not permitted under the gdpr so that's kind of interesting to uh, sub it's or not to to sub without explicit permission and consent of the the data controller so the per subcontracting yeah situation oh, or just as a blanket yes you can subcontract per per subcontracting company oh, oh yeah that's a yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, it's one of the provisions in the in the the law. So, um, it's 
causing a lot of consternation. I'll say that. But yeah. So I I got. I got to admit, this feels like a very large company problem, not a medium and small company problem. I don't think a lot of medium and small companies are doing a ton of due diligence at the level so. that this that this matters. I don't think so. And it's also not clear exactly what kinds of services are being outsourced, right? I mean, you know, now certainly, for instance, you wouldn't expect to, you know, to, to be able to sign off on what kind of janitorial service. Right you know, uh, your cloud hosting provider uses. And At so, some point there's, there's a, a level of trust that you're putting into a third party vendor. Correct. Yes. Um, for them to do their job properly. And you're somewhat trusting if they've been successful in the free market and lots of other people are using them that they probably are not bad yeah, at and, whatever subbing they're doing. And, and by the way, you know, a, a, another way to look at this is, if if you i think you hit the nail on the head this probably is a larger company issue um because that you're you're right a lot of smaller companies aren't going to go off and they you know they're they're not going to do you know show me your iso 27001 cert or whatever um but the larger companies certainly will and and kind of what this tells me is that the provider that they are talking about here probably is not really um, interested in that type of market, right? And so, so they're kind of they're kind of doing the take it or leave it, you know. Uh, the 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 provider is, I should say, is, is yeah, saying, take yeah. it or leave it. Sure. And if if it turns out that there's enough pushback from very desirable customers, maybe they'll come up with a different model. Yeah, and and by the way, if you are, I mean, it, it's this isn't a it's not a one way street here because if you're a you know if you are a um, you know, a massive cloud hosting provider with you know tens of or hundreds of thousands of customers is completely unworkable to think that you know if you're going to try to subcontract something out that you got to go and get permission you know consent from every single one of your customers well that's a very good point that you make too because this is sort of the model that I think the technology industry is moving towards not away from mm-hmm. and you know, I guess this author's pointing out this is the one of the unintended potential negative side effects, but I don't think you're going to stop this train. I think that corporate risk boards are probably going to have to find a way to swallow this. They're not going to like it, though. But I don't see it changing. No, and I, and I certainly think as, as IT continues to consolidate into, uh, you know, into a smaller number of large in large organizations, and, you know, we, we are actually seeing that already. You know, it's AWS and 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 Azure and um, you know, and others. You know, the, the, these are these are becoming the large uh, kind of large utility providers for IT. And as more and more of that, you know, that business goes there, I think the economics of them kind of uh, placating individual customers starts to get smaller and smaller so uh, you know i don't know where it ends and and i i do think that the the author here points to a um you know kind of a systemic issue uh but i i i I think that in the near term probably even in the medium term you can you can mitigate this by going to different providers i mean there's well I mean, let's look at it from a hardware manufacturing standpoint. If I'm going to buy Cisco routers, 
I'm not getting into a whole bunch of discussions of them about how they sub out and who makes their components and how those components are made and who sub. Yeah. Right. So is this a silly thing to begin with? Are we wasting a whole bunch of people's time trying to do this sort of corporate governance? You know, in a way, yes, and in a way, no. I mean, it's, so so think think about one of the, the the big trends in risk management these days, and that is, you know, th- third party risk. You know, so so think about the Target, but, Home Depot, OPM. Okay, uh, agreed. But is this a lipstick on a pig sort of situation? I mean, is this still, yeah, we have third-party risk, we have supply chain risk, but is this actually doing anything to fix the problem? Or is it hiring a bunch of auditors, and again, this is a large company (laughs) issue, hiring a bunch of auditors to run a bunch of paperwork that chews up a whole bunch of resources and time, and the vendors are saying basically what the customers want to hear anyway. Yeah. And (laughs) Fair enough. I'm just, is there any You're not wrong. You're not wrong. I, I, I'm not sure there is, um, but it, but at the same time, I, I think a lot of this is a legal kabuki dance, you know, mm-hmm. and it, because it's it's you know it's a it's a deal where you're trying everybody's trying to um, to show that they acted responsibly. They did their due diligence yeah. to a reasonable level. Correct, correct. And so yeah. if you don't if you don't if you don't do all that pointless paperwork you know, low value paperwork, then, then, you know, if something bad happens, you don't have a leg to stand on to say that, you know, well, look, we, you know, it wasn't us. It was, it was our cloud provider. Well, you know, the cloud provider would, is going to come back or, or the victim's going to come back and say, yeah, but what did you, what kind of due diligence and monitoring did you do of, of that supplier? Like, how did you, how did you get comfortable that they were doing the right stuff? They were in the Gardner Magic Quadrant. Come on. Yeah, well, hey, maybe maybe there's a, a new avenue of litigation <laughs> that's been untapped. <laughs> we trusted Gardner and look what happened to us. <laughs> exactly. I'm not I'm not picking on Gardner. I'm just they're well known. Right, right. Yeah. I you know, it's it's uh it's an it's an interesting question. Um but but I uh, so so I think that's the I think that's the the fundamental challenge is that companies a don't I don't think reap a lot of tangible value from those vendor management practices because it is just a kabuki dance. Um, but at the same time, I think they do reap some um, you know, some legal value. That's interesting. I don't know. You may so, be right. So anyway, but you know, it's it point point of the point of the the article is or the the piece here is things are changing and um to your point we do have to figure out what's our response going to be is is our providers start taking our ability to oversee them away and i guess the other aspect of this is something goes tragically wrong you know and lawsuits spin up who can you sue yeah exactly exactly that's right, and and in, in by, by the way, part of you know part of being able to sue is demonstrating that the other party acted in bad faith and you know whatnot. So, um, anyway, uh, moving on to the next story, 
This one comes from careersinfosecurity.com. I, I guess that's you know one of the many brands of the health info security and bank info security and whatever infosecurity.com uh, network that they have. The title is Breach Settlement Has Unusual Penalty. Pretty, uh, pretty interesting story. We talked about this particular breach at the time. Uh, there was a company called Virtua, uh, Virtua Medical. Uh, I don't remember the, the full name of them, but uh, this this is a medical provider in New Jersey. Uh, this provider outsourced to a company called Best Medical Transcription, based in Georgia, I think. <laughs> What, was it really the best? As it turns out, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so best medical transcription, and then uh, then apparently in turn engaged an, another third party. Now, as, as you may, as an astute listener may realize, a uh, healthcare provider outsourcing medical transcription services is going to certainly be an, a HIPAA relevant type service, and you have to have a a business associate agreement. Well, I'll cut to the chase. Um, Best medical transcription screwed up in a bunch of different ways. Um, they, uh, the, the owner apparently made a change to the website where the, the these transcription, uh, the transcribed files and the, um, the um, audio recordings were hosted uh, during an upgrade, and and it resulted in all that data being publicly accessible it was indexed by Google. And and uh, interestingly, it was on an open FTP site, and Google still is indexing FTP sites. Correct. Which I was unaware of that yeah. they were still doing that. Absolutely fascinating. Hmm. Um, so you know, they, again, that was several years ago. I'm I'm, I'm I assume they still do, but in, in any event, um, the this Virtua uh, the 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 actual um, healthcare provider ended up getting fined um, by the, the attorney general of New Jersey. And, uh, and then they actually also went after this best medical transcription for a number of different um, violations, mostly of HIPAA. And it, one of them, by the way, was that they didn't in turn have a business associate agreement with their, um, with this, subcontractor in India. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, they didn't perform uh, risk assessment and, you know, they, they screwed up in the first place. Uh, but in addition to a $200,000 fine that this company had to pay, the owner of Best Medical Transcription is barred from operating a business in the state of New Jersey. Wow, which is really fascinating. That's kind of the the I'd say the you know the the lead in this story is that you know th- this um, I I had never heard of this kind of uh, sanction before. But yeah, this this person is not permitted to um, to to own a business. He's not permitted to own more than ten percent of uh, common or of any type of stock of any New Jersey based company. He can't be on the board of directors of a New Jersey based company and a bunch of other related Which, uh, restrictions. I mean, that smacks of serious ethics concerns. Yes. Right. As opposed to a technical mistake. 
Correct. This is, we don't feel you're ethically moral enough uh, to, uh, that's probably not the appropriate term, but, (laughs) you know, we don't trust you to ever run a business in our state ever again. Get out. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, my my read of this was, we really wish we could put you in jail, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but... But apparently there was nothing, uh, not nothing, um, in, in criminal in in that in that direction that would allow that. So, but you're right. Um, this is a, an odd, an odd and heavy-handed sanction. And you know the the article does point out that this is not completely a one-off. There apparently were some other similar kinds of cases. Although I would say the other cases that they um, they referenced were more that the company, like an insurance company, was barred from doing business in a particular state for a period of time, as a you know as a as a settlement for some wrongdoing. I but I I didn't read anything where a specific person was barred from uh, from owning or running a business in a in a particular state. So really interesting stuff. Um, it, you know, kind of goes back to you know a we have to act ethically in IT and in IT security and and b you know the as as time goes on the 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 legal landscape continues to evolve and uh, you know businesses and uh, leadership of businesses can be held personally accountable i mean there's there's been a whole bunch of um Cases recently, like the with, with Equifax, two two um, you know two directors were or executives or managers are being tried. I think one was sentenced for insider trading, and you know so the the, the tolerance for shenanigans in IT is um, you know is, is certainly coming down. And you know also I this is what I infer as a trend of holding individual people accountable. So. Interesting stuff. I think if we ever go into business together, we should use the word shenanigans somewhere in our business name. <laughs> I think that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. I'll have to think about that. Yeah. So um, the next story comes from uh, from Motherboard, and the title here is Massive Data Leaks Keep Happening Because Big Data – or sorry, Big Companies – can't afford to lose your data. So this is a, I, I would say, an overly cynical uh, look at why companies are are continuing to experience data breaches. And and the uh, the long and the short of of this article is, well, it's you know it's it's not economically painful to avoid breaches, and therefore companies are you know that don't don't have a strong incentive. To, well, to it's it's more them. expensive to avoid it than allow it to happen. Right, exactly. Better, well said, yes. Yeah, and it, kind of like that scene from Fight Club when they're talking about what motivates auto companies to do a recall, if anybody recalls that scene. But yes, to your point, I would – I've never been in a conversation where someone has said to me, it's cheaper if we let this breach happen than to secure it. We'll take that risk. Now, to be fair, it's never that black and white. There's far more that goes into that decision, uh, in, in at least my experience. But go go on with your summary, sorry. Yeah, so so I mean, I think that's 
that is the long and the short of of the article. It, it goes on and adds a lot of detail about the the Ponemon, uh cost of a breach survey, which I I continue to have concerns with. Um, you know that they they indicate that the average uh, cost per data breach globally is three point eight six million dollars. That's, that's per individual breach. Yeah, per individual breach in the U.S. That's that's the global number. In the U.S., the average is seven point nine one million dollars. The problem with just to go off on a slight tangent, the problem with this number is the same problem you would have if, let's say, uh, Bill Gates or or um, I guess I guess we have to substitute Bill Gates with uh, you know with um, what's his name from Amazon. Uh, damn it, Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos. Thank you. I'm getting old. You know, so so it's a, it's a problem if Jeff Bezos, you know, lived on your block. Obviously, you wouldn't, right? But somebody asks you, "What's the average income of people on your block?" Well, he's going <laughs> to totally screw, skew the uh, the average, and so that's the that's the problem with this, right? It's when you when you you have a bunch of probably really inexpensive breaches and then you have a couple that are super expensive the average comes out to be um, inordinately high i'll say that so i don't think the average is actually that high i think the average is the 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 breach the cost of a breach that most companies are most likely to have to incur is going to be significantly lower than that yeah i which which by the way doesn't help the story any right because this just means that it's even more uh financially uh companies have a financial disincentive i think to um to spend too much on security because it's um you know it's not it's not that painful and so that's why by the way why i think we've we see laws like um like gdpr and like the the new EU NIS and the the the, the new uh, California data breach law and and I think we're going to continue to see those because they're you know in the absence of uh, what I'll call a free market forces um, you know, penalizing companies co- governments are going to step in and and do that for them now you know I think there's a fundamental question if if um, you know what? What is the what is the real harm to a person if they continue to do business with a company that's lost their data? Uh, yeah, this gets into really weird sort of game theory around economic incentives and disincentives, and you know this gets really esoteric very quick. Now you know me; I'm a free market guy. I, I prefer that over government regulations most of the time. Um. But I think the problem is the free market moves slower than most people want it to move. Companies aren't punished fast enough, and, and the government clearly moves much faster with you know than the free market in many cases. So, yeah, I I, yeah. I, I have trouble with this article. I I think like anything, a company has to find the right balance of how much to spend and and where and how to spend that money to mitigate risk, but they can never get to zero risk. You, you can't get to zero risk and do business. So you can also overspend on risk mitigation and you want to be efficient with your resources. You know, you're trying to make money and employ people and ultimately be a profitable business. Uh, 
so and there's no perfect solution i if there were a perfect solution we wouldn't have this massive industry of random people trying to come up with random solutions to all these new and emerging problems every day so it's not as black and white i think as as a lot of people want to think it is but i don't know i i don't I, i'm pretty cynical i'm not this cynical I will tell you, though, that it usually comes down to we know how to secure things, but the cost, whether it be in terms of business flexibility, in terms of real dollar cost, in terms of uh, what else do I want to, you know, impact to users, usually exceeds the value. You know, again, when you get it's it's like a hockey stick curve or I should say a, a you know, a chart where, where it curves upwards dramatically as you get closer to zero risk, the cost to increment less risk goes up dramatically each each step you get closer to zero risk. And, you know, there is a sweet spot that I think companies are always trying to find in an environment that is dynamic and ever-changing. Yeah. I, I, so I think that, that the thing that is different here is – there's a delineation between a company losing, let's say it's intellectual property in the, and the personal data of its customers, right? Because the one is, one is an asset that harms them if they, if they mishandle it. And the other is an asset that doesn't harm them if they mishandle it. I mean, it doesn't, ha- it doesn't harm them directly, right? It's, it's, they don't, they don't, um, you know, they don't lose a competitive advantage if, you know, Equifax structurally didn't lose any, you know, the, the value of their company, the value of their intellectual property and what they do didn't decrease when they lost all of that data. You know, well, potentially they, their contracts with third parties might have been impacted, which future revenue growth is impacted, which can. Uh, correct. And I, I yeah. guess, I mean, I. You, you're right. You're right. I guess what I'm saying is their 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 book value didn't change. Correct. Right. The, yeah. the the assets they hold didn't go down. They didn't. You know. They did. They weren't robbed of money. They. You know. They didn't. They don't have to go and recreate some new and you know, some intellectual property that that um, is now out in the in in the open. And they. You know. They have to reestablish their uh, their market dominance or, or what have you. Um, and and that's you know so so the only person that's or the only group that's harmed directly is the you know the the individual people whose data they you know quote mishandled and and I so I think that's that's where I think a lot of uh, a lot of people have issue misgivings and so it, it in a way it's kind of like thinking about a bank. Or an investment house, you know, the, but rather than it being money that, you know, it, the money of individual people, it's their personal data. And, and so I think we, you know, we are in, we would be intolerant of a company mishandling our bank or an investment company mishandling our investments. So we don't value PI very high? Um. I so I think that's the uh, I think that's the kind of the fundamental and I'm I'm struggling to put this into words. It's kind of coming to me as, as I'm talking here, but um, 
you know, I think that's the, the I think that's the fundamental analogy here is that um, the in in the case of um, in the case of banks and investment uh, companies, there's a lot of regulation on what on how you have to handle that money and how you have to protect that money and and whatnot. And that same sort of regulation doesn't that, that scheme just doesn't exist in the world of personal data. But the harm yet. to a yeah yet and and, and consistently right? It, right. But but the harm to individual people is not completely unlike, you know, losing, having money taken away from you in all cases. I mean, it, it, in some cases it, it it's not, I mean, it, like if your credit card gets stolen in the U S and it's, this varies by country, I understand. But in the U S if your credit card gets stolen, it's a hassle, but it's not really a financial loss to you, right? It is to, it, is, it ends up being a financial loss to somebody, but it isn't, to you and so right. we like when we saw for instance in the wake of the target breach there was all sorts of outrage you know we're never going to shop at i mean i i remember seeing all these interviews on tv we're never going to shop at target again and then you know that the next weekend target offered like 10 percent discount as an apology <laughs> and i i i gotta believe that they probably lost very few customers. In, in, so what you're saying is, if I need something on sale at Target, I should conduct another big breach. Well, I mean, that was basically what I was saying. Yeah, <laughs> long way of getting there, but anyway, I I, uh, I I think I think we just don't have the economics of this correct. I you were you made a comment that I think is really important to understand. I don't think organizations despite what a lot of people think. I don't think really any organization, maybe that one guy we talked about earlier, notwithstanding, uh, I don't think we really see organizations trying to intentionally short shrift security. I think think it's largely done out of ignorance and false senses of security and lack of creativity and not keeping up with the times and, you know, under investment and kicking the can down the road and, and all those sorts of things, you know, and, and bureaucratic processes like we saw with, uh, you know, I, I think we saw with uh, Equifax, you know, where you just, you don't, your processes aren't, aren't robust. And, and so, you know, is that a, is that a case where they, um, you know, they, they, sh- they shirked their responsibility, you know, because they thought it was, you know, it was cheaper to, um, you know, to not patch that one server. I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. I, I don't think anybody intentionally said don't patch it. Right. Yeah. It's usually a consequence of a long series of other unrelated decisions. Right. And, and, and I think those decisions in large part happen completely divorced of any conception of the risk. You know, like I just don't think that anybody's thinking. Well, nobody, nobody in general, and I, I, I got to believe in in Equifax in particular, is is thinking as they're desi- as they're designing their processes and their audit programs and their patching programs and their vulnerability scanning programs. You know, if I if I set this setting, what is the likelihood that I'm going to incur this massive data breach? That you know, th- that's not how. Uh, I mean, maybe it should, but at the end of the day, we have to get stuff done. 
<laughs> and you know, IT has to, IT stuff has has to work, and we make these trade offs. I think, and a lot of times we don't understand the implications. So, very true. Very true. All right, so moving on to the last story. This one comes from ZDNet. Title is City of Valdez, Alaska, admits to paying off ransomware infection. So, uh, uh, in- kind of interesting story. Uh, this city had 27 servers and 170 PCs infected by the Hermes ransomware. Uh, and they, they hired a third-party company in... Virginia, I'm going to guess somebody like BAE probably, uh, and they, they negotiated the, the cost down to $26,000, almost just under $27,000, um, which is an interesting thing, you know, that, and, and I can, and I'm going to go out on a limb and infer that they didn't have backups. <laughs> And the reason I say that, well, the reason well. I say that is that they um, they are still bringing up their systems one at a time with the and scrubbing them and, yeah. the, and scrubbing them, and then next year they said in 2019 they're going to go through and do a more methodical replacement of the systems that were uh, that, that were uh, infected to make sure that they're no longer infected with anything else. Which, by the way, I think is the right way to do it. When when I read that wording, I've I've long said, if you have a system that's infected, you know you've got it. You can't trust that thing anymore. It's got to be Burn taken it to off. the ground. And, and well, I mean, but here's the other thing too: is what about the systems around it? If it ever comes back on the network or was on the network, uh, yeah, I, I yeah. think it's a little naive to say that it's isolated to just those systems based on the IOCs they've detected. I, I mean, but this starts to get you know, paranoid and crazy in a hurry, but I agree. And and by the way, this, this is the, this is my love of active directory all over. Right. Again. You know, <laughs> you're, you're, you're on a, you're on an important point that, um, figuring out the, the edges of where an incident has, uh, you know, has propagated in the environment is, is m- sometimes more art than science. So, right. Um, yeah, anyway, so, uh, yeah, I, again, I think that um, that this story kind of indicates that they didn't have backups to fall back to, and and so they're, you know, this is this does not appear to be a situation where the, um, you know, they, they determined that paying the ransom was the, the the shortest path to getting back up and running, you know, this certainly seems to me like they didn't have backups, and uh, but this was the only path. Yeah, that's that's kind of my. So, I read. you know, to be clear, I'm not condemning them for paying the ransom. I know some people say that you should never do it. I've come across a lot of cases where it makes sense. It sucks. It's not ideal, but it may make sense. So I think it's easy to judge when you're out in the middle of the situation. But I think that we have covered a number of situations where it may be the right thing to do in the short term. Yeah, well, I mean, I think even, even the FBI is, has been has issued kind of conflicted messages about this you know it, it, it basically said you shouldn't pay the ransom but you know we kind of understand that there may be circumstances where you don't have a choice and i and i'm gonna guess that this is probably one of those uh circumstances um 
but you know, again, you got to do what you got to do. Uh, it is unfortunate right. because you know, typically that you're just propagating the problem. You're you're you know, you're you're funding future future bad activity. So yeah. Um, yeah, ideally you don't want to pay it, right? And there's no guarantee that you're necessarily going to get your data back. Correct. And then you know, do you become do you become a, a, a favored target of opportunity for for people? You know, once once you've paid, are you now in the little black book of of targets? Well, uh, one would hope that if you pay, you understand the root cause of the initial compromise and you fix it. But sure. Yeah. So so they. The, Later in the article, they do go on to talk about how there was uh, some concern that there may be a, a, a targeted campaign against uh, or government agencies in this particular part of Alaska. But upon further investigation, they, they were different types of ransomware affecting different uh, different jurisdictions in the same area, uh, apparently by different actors. But the the, the person they interviewed here did say that they believe that most of these uh, were the result of that the Emotet infection, which we actually talked about, I think, on the last show. This is, again, where uh, the, kind of coming back to um, a, a lot of uh, uh, this is this cybercrime stuff is becoming industrialized and the um, there's there's an initial hook to get something like Emotet installed in organizations and then access to that is auctioned off and some people will install Hermes and some people will install, you know, Sam Sam and some people will install something else. So, you know, that this is, um, you know, I, I often hear though, you know, why me? Why would, uh, you know, why, why would a bad actor want to come after, you know, my little, my little city? Well, you know, the reality is, you're just there, <laughs> you know. Somebody, somebody in 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 that government agency managed to get themselves infected. They showed up on a on a dashboard as available to purchase, and Bing, bang, boom! There you go. I mean, it's nothing <laughs> per, nothing personal, just business. So, um, and, and by the way, I think that I think that uh, model of economics in in Cybercrime is becoming more common. I'm seeing it happening more and more, and it's concerning because, you know, it it allows everybody to specialize in the in the right. attack chain. You know, the the person or group who's uh, who's who's getting that initial foothold, they can do it in any number of different ways. Whether it's through an open RDP server with a weak password, or whether it's through a phishing email, or a watering hole attack, you know, they just have to get that initial foothold and then they can go off and sell, uh, you know, sell that access to whoever, you know, whoever will pay for it. And, you know, you could very well end up with some kind of lame ass initial intrusion, uh, you know, being leveraged by some sophisticated nation state. So watch out. (laughs) Anyway, Anything more you wanted to say on that one? No, I think we've covered it pretty extensively. Um, yeah, I'm good. All right. Well, that's the show for uh, for today. Um, happy uh, happy belated Thanksgiving to everybody in uh, in the U.S. 
the uh, the holidays are upon us once again. <laughs> um, thanks to our Patreon donors. You um, you can uh, uh, just a reminder: you can find links to the stories we talked about today on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow Mr. Callet on Twitter at Lurg. You can follow me on Twitter at Malicious Link. And with that, we'll talk again hopefully next week. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.